Hello, friend. We all know you have literally four billion podcast options at your fingertips. Thank you, as always, for choosing to listen to The Tully Show. This is your obligatory, but I promise, very quick reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. You know about all the stuff that's going up there every single week. On top of that, I just started a brand new show. I asked patrons to send me their guiltiest musical pleasures. The outpouring of horrible music has been truly overwhelming. Who knew we could have that? much fun celebrating our collectively terrible musical taste it's going to be an ongoing show it's a lot of fun come on and join us that and two to three other patreon exclusive podcasts going up every single week at patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show <laughs> Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from New York, a journalist with extensive credits and now author of her first book entitled Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Hello and welcome, Danielle Friedman. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining me. You know, when I, when I saw your, we were talking before we started rolling here, I literally stumbled across your book at Barnes & Noble Old School. The analog way of discovering books <laughs> uh, and information it 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 kind of took me a second for the reality of the 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 world the milieu the situation that you're writing about to really sink in and it was only really as i spent time with your book that it really hit me uh, i'm not telling you anything that you don't know but for other people who haven't been thinking about the subject of female fitness as it relates to society and human you know humankind in general a simple statement of fact Women have been on the planet just as long as men have, and yet the idea that a woman ought to exert herself out of anything other than necessity, like poor farming folk, for example, or the Viking women when the men go off marauding, that you would a woman would exert herself out of anything other than necessity, that's been mainstream for maybe 30 years, give or take. And on top of that, something that I only realized in spending time with your book, the the idea that a woman might choose to exert herself in such a way for any reason other than to try to make herself attractive, that's maybe been mainstream for, seriously, 15, 20? <laughs> that's a real bizarre state of being that we all know to be true, and yet until I came upon your, uh, uh, came upon your book, had never really, really reflected upon. Yeah, I think, you know, fitness today, especially for women, is such a way of life and it's so ubiquitous um, depending on where you live, especially if you are in a city <clears throat> like L.A. or New York, it can feel sort of all consuming. Um, it's it, it is um, it's a surprisingly recent history. And I think a lot of people, especially young people today, really are not aware of how relatively recently women were denied both opportunities and access to to exercise and to exert themselves in a kind of formal way with the goal of becoming stronger. Um, 
there have been periods throughout history, um, going back hundreds of years when sort of physical culture was more or less popular for women, but it was always, there have always been these um, both implicit and explicit rules about what's acceptable, what's ladylike. And, and, you know, similarly, um, what the goal is, is the goal to, like you said, you know, become more beautiful, more attractive to um, a man, or is it to cultivate strength for strength's sake? So the fact that this history is so recent and that I discovered no one had actually told this story in a kind of cohesive way was really what inspired me to want to write this book. As you say, there's there's an ebb and flow to it. And there has been even an American society for you use the example of Rosie the Riveter. When mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. there was no choice, America was more than willing to flip the script and celebrate a woman who had visible muscle tone. But as soon as the men came home and they were the rightful heirs of the factory jobs, everybody just sort of conveniently forgot, <clears throat> excuse me, that it had been cool for a woman exactly. to get to get her hands dirty and put a bandana over her hair. Exactly. Um, and I mean, if you look at the Rosie the Riveter poster, even though she is flexing a bicep, it is like the tiniest bicep, <laughs> you know, that you could imagine. And <clears throat> she's very, she's very slim. She's very feminine looking. And um, excuse me. <clears throat> um, I'm right there with you. Don't worry. Everybody <laughs> Sorry. Strap yourselves in. There's, some, there's something going on and clearly it's bicoastal now. Yes, yes. Um, my book begins in the 1950s, which is kind of immediately after the Rosie the Riveter era, post-World War II. And part of why it begins in that era is because that decade marked a real low point for women and movement. Like you said, after the war, um, women were told by government propaganda and social institutions in not-so-subtle ways that it was time for them to go home. You know, they had served their purpose and now they needed to move, move over for the men and also to become homemakers to, you know, build nurturing environments for the men. Um, and so um, there, it was a time of really strict gender norms. Um, there was this sort of cultural anxiety after women had taken men's place at home during the war um, that sort of met women were becoming too masculine and it could throw off the power dynamic and be really threatening to men. So there was a real premium for women on, on sort of performing femininity and being ladylike. Um, and at the same time, while all of that was in play for women, for the whole country, actually, it was a time of sort of, of limited movement and of leisure. After the, the tumult of the previous few decades, the Great Depression, the war, um, Americans were really seeking comfort. And so much of what developed in that decade and what they called the modern way of life was geared towards sort of like exerting yourself as, as little as possible you know, um, TV, appliances, ranch homes that didn't have stairs to climb, um, limited movement, relaxation, leisure was considered the good life. And so for men and women, the idea that one should adopt a formal 
or regular exercise routine, not sports, sports were still had a place, but an exercise routine for health and strength was really considered kind of ridiculous. And um, so when the earliest fitness, modern fitness event uh, evangelists started pushing that, they were treated as kind of oddballs and radical. Right. And perhaps dangerous, I, if I if I recall his positions on this correctly, uh, Donald Trump's now deceased personal physician subscribed to uh, a point of view that seemed like it, it was an heir to this uh, way of thinking that overexertion was the real killer, not underexertion. Absolutely. Yes. There were people still believed, doctors still believed that, you know, we were born with a limited number of heartbeats. And so you didn't want to waste them on exercise. Um, and, and there was also the country was heading into, or was facing, I should say, the cardiac crisis where um, growing numbers of largely middle to upper class men who are often kind of in middle management and office jobs were, su were suffering from heart attacks and other heart conditions um, that were believed to be, it was like really the first time that the concept of stress um, was, was coming into play. And so um, there wasn't really a field of exercise science yet. And doctors were really unsure. I mean, they, there, a lot of physicians kind of intuited that exercise was good for you and being active was good for you. But um, since there was such limited research, they were often hesitant to prescribe it. And then, of course, for women, there were the, the sort of fears were doubled because there was a lot of fear around what uh, strenuous exercise would do to a woman's reproductive health. You know, the the, the belief that I heard again and again while reporting my book was that it would make a, a woman's uterus fall out. Um, that was, that often, was a, re a repeated refrain from a number of people who were in the field in those days. You know, I, so my fact checker and I, we tried to tie, we tried to figure out where that belief came from. <laughs> and I, it was hard to, we, we never did find like a, an origin source and you know, it was more, it was just this, from as far as we could tell, it was just a widely held belief for several decades. Um, and I think it was being, it was reinforced by all kinds of authority figures, whether, you know, parents, in some cases, doctors, um, teachers, um, there were variations on that theme too. Some women were told that it would make their ovaries jiggle loose. Um, there was also the belief that vigorous exercise would turn a woman into a man in that it would like, you know, literally and figuratively, it would make her grow a mustache and develop sort of um, what was seen as unfeminine, large unfeminine legs. And I think all of those beliefs really spoke to how threatening women's strength was uh, to society at the time because it's kind of served as a check, you know, to, to women's strength. It, it both, um, you know, it, it ultimately served to support the idea that women were the weaker sex. And it also reinforced the idea that women primarily existed to, you know, reproduce and have babies. So um, women faced a lot of, a lot of social and cultural barriers to becoming strong. Right. And, and political in a sense, as you point out, and I, this is not a connection I was going to make on my own, but it makes perfect sense. The Cold War 
element of this. I can still remember in the 1980s if they were going to have a Russian or Bulgarian female character on some sitcom, she was going to be really tough and she was going to be really, really butch and she was going to be the antithesis of what we considered femininity. So you make the case that American women were not going to match up to the East German swimming team. So instead we would uh, make fun of them and become mm -hmm. the exact opposite of them. Yeah, the the Cold War came into play, came into play in a few different ways. Um, on one hand, it actually helped to fuel the rise of fitness culture in general in mid-century America, because um, the Soviets were in, you know, th there were national programs to encourage physical fitness, and there was a real fear here that. Americans were becoming soft. Um, JFK wrote a famous piece for Sports Illustrated called The Soft American. And, you know, there was this fear that Americans were de developing what they called spectatoritis. And that because of the modern way of life and the good life, um, we no longer knew how to use our bodies. The, the numbers of military recruits or draftees who were being denied due to lack of fitness, they were going up. Um, so there was suddenly this urgency around creating a more fit nation. At the same time, like you said, Russian women who were very much encouraged to be strong were in all sorts of popular media held up as the example of what not to be, because like you said, they were, they, they were presented as the epitome of unfemininity. So there were lots of mixed messages that were being delivered at that time. And there was one fateful event that it seems like above all else sort of sealed the um, the American ideal of what women could and could not do in terms of physical exertion and uh, physical fitness. This race at the 1928 Olympics that seems to have gone sideways in a, in a, in a, in a way that was spectacular and sort of hard to watch, especially for men. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so this this event was had an especially profound impact in women's running specifically. Um, the nineteen twenty eight Olympics, for the first time, featured um, a few longer track and field events for women. Um, it was the first time an eight hundred meter event was held, um, and it happened to be it was it was an extremely hot and humid day. There were competitors from, I believe at least nine countries and the women gave it their all. They broke previous records. And at the end, they kind of collapsed onto the field because they're athletes <laughs> and they exerted themselves and it was really hot. And people were horrified. Spectators and reporters alike were horrified and described the scene as if it were a massacre. Um, you know, uh, this, they described it as a scene of kind of like carnage and, and just um, the, you know, the, the, the sight of the sweat and just women having really not caring at all about their femininity was um, shocking. And so after that event, because of that reaction, they struck the event from the Olympics until the early 1960s. Um, and it also had a chilling effect on women's running 
at least I can say, you know, in this country for several decades to come, because, um, I mean, there were few track programs in general for women until the 1970s, but, um, but in the ones that, that did exist, it's, there were just so many, you know, there was, there were still so many fears around, um, what running longer distances could do to a woman and what was, what was acceptable. And so it, it would take, um, decades more of work on the part of running pioneers to undo that messaging and begin to convince the powers that be that women were just as strong as men, you know, on the track. Right. There's a couple of, I want to stick to the first half of your book. I don't want to spoil it for everybody. I encourage people to read it, but there's any number of moments that are so uh, cinematic for lack of a better word. One of them, one of the ones that comes to mind is story of a runner. I guess she was not the first woman who ran the Boston Marathon, but the first woman who ran it with a, a number on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like um, literal metaphors of when we say they were trying to stop women from running in the Boston Marathon. We mean <laughs> they were trying to stop a woman. What is the story? Correct. There? Yeah, yeah. So there... As you as you alluded to, there was a woman who crashed the Boston Marathon in 1966. Um, it, it was a time, of course, that women were not allowed to compete in the race. Um, but because she kind of snuck in, didn't have a number, and uh, and just maybe it was just the luck of the circumstances, um, she finished the race without much conflict. The following year in 1967, Catherine Switzer, who was a junior at Syracuse University at the time, um, entered the race. She entered using her initials, KV Switzer, because she, that was her byline. She was a journalism major. And, um, because they didn't realize she was a woman, she, she got an official number. Um, everything was going great until about four miles into the race when a truck carrying photographers began, um, kind of taunting the, one of the race's directors who was riding with them saying, you had a dame in your race, you know, there's a girl in your race. And this race director, Jock Semple had a very short temper and, leapt off of the truck onto the course and tried to physically remove Catherine's number, her bib, um, in what was an assault. I mean, and it just so happened that because the photographers were there, they snapped, you know, they captured the whole incident and the photos, um, I don't know if we could say it sort of went, they went viral before viral was a thing, but they were plastered on newspapers around the world. Um, Catherine successfully shook him off. She was running with a coach and her boyfriend at the time who was training to be an Olympic hammer thrower who uh, intervened and, and pushed Jack Semple off. And so she knew at that point she had to finish the race. She did. Um, and she became a tireless advocate for women's running. She ultimately helped. She was one of the pioneers who helped um, open the Boston Marathon to women officially which didn't happen until 1972. And then, yeah, she was behind the first ever road race for women. And she advocated for an Olympic women's marathon, which did not um, happen until 1984, which when we talk about the recency of all this, it is amazing that women were not allowed to compete in the Olympic marathon until the 80s. 
Yeah, especially nowadays when that's, I think that's one of the sports that's sort of been, I, I don't know, like women have been let behind the velvet rope, so to speak, in a number of sports more so than in others. You don't see a whole lot of female football, but ten, mm. tennis, running, these these softball, you know, th these are okay. And even that is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, another moment from the book that, wow, was it striking if I understood it correctly. I'm going to say the name wrong, uh, Lot Burke. Lottie, Lottie, Lottie Burke. Okay. Uh-huh. So first of all, her her real claim to fame is that she invented the bar workout. What what became, you know, today's multi-billion dollar bar industry. Right. But prior to that, the story that you have of uh she's Jewish and in Nazi Germany the 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 walls are closing in. And can you can you tell the story? I mean Really, it feels like the it feels like the last five minutes of a movie that wins mm. awards. How this plays out. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, L Lottie is a fascinating and complicated and flawed and larger than life character. Seems like, and she was a she was a dancer, a modern ballerina in Germany, and she, as you said, she was Jewish. Um, it was the 1930s, and um, she had been warned before a performance with her husband who wasn't Jewish that, um, if she were to perform, they would basically, the SS would come and arrest her. And so it's, it is this incredibly cinematic, um, sort of image. Her, her husband gave the entire performance as if he was dancing with her, you know, he, he, um, pretended she was there and she waited in the wings and at the very end she ran onto the stage and I think people threw flowers at her feet and she thanked the audience for not being Nazis at which point the SS come rushing toward the stage and she has to flee out the back with her husband and it was only because well he wasn't Jewish and he he had a British passport um, that they were able to flee to London and they settled there as refugees. Um, and she, she struggled to find work there. <laughs> Modern ballet hadn't taken off. Um, and after several different life twists and turns, she decided to create this, this workout. And she opened a fitness studio at a time when um, very few exist, existed, you know, and um, there's much more to her story. She became a fixture of the swinging sixties in London. And, um, it's, you know, I don't want to give it all away, No, no, but, of course not. but her story, um, there there's, there's enough for at least one, <laughs> one film in her story. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, something that I noticed in going through all these different stories of all these different female fitness pioneers, it seems to me that, um, there were very few spaces for women to be entrepreneurial in the 20th century. And yet these, these aren't the very often when we hear stories of female pioneers, you hear the story of the compromises they made because a man was actually the money man and, and mm, allowed her mm. to go so far. These were women who were founder, CEO, president, custodian of their, of their businesses. And that seems like a common theme between, uh, you know, Betty Pruden, I'm going to say that wrong as well. Pruden, Pruden, yes. <laughs> I'm over two. It just, it's, and then straight through to even Jane Fonda. 
Yes. Well, you know, a theme that I did that I did encounter throughout, um, which just kind of emerged organically, is many of the women that I write about, many of the pioneers did have did have supportive men in their life who um, believed in them and were very enlightened and helped them helped them launch their businesses. Um, but you know, for example, Judy Shepard Missit, who created Jazzercise initially invented Jazzercise in 1969, and women weren't even allowed to um, have their own line of credit until I believe it was 1974. So um, there were, you know, they, these women were really determined and savvy, and many of them found workarounds until, you know, the culture and the laws changed so that they could open their own, they could own their own businesses. Jane Fonda is a fascinating story on a million levels, but um, on this one in particular, what a lot of people don't realize is that she actually created her workout and initially opened her, her brick and mortar workout studio to fund her then husband, Tom Hayden's political ambitions. Um, that was the reason why she went into the fitness business. And for many years, every dime that the studio and then her books and her videos brought in went to Tom Hayden's campaigns and um, like uh, pack basically. So it's such a fascinating dynamic there between, you know, um, the feminist and the sort of um, and the patriarchy. And um, I, I really found with so many aspects of women's fitness history, there's just this underlying tension, you know, between liberation and repression and um, feminism and patriarchy. And, and that's part of what makes it so fascinating, but also so complicated and, and in some cases challenging to write about. Did he win any of these elections? And follow-up question, did they remain married? <laughs> yes, he was elected to the California State Assembly. All right. Another fun fact there is that the guy who directed her first workout video, Jade Fonda's Workout, which went on to become one of the best-selling home videos of all time, it sold 17 million copies, um, this director actually had directed Tom Hayden's political ads. He, his background was in, was in political ad making and he was kind of like up for a change and <laughs> up for a challenge. And he ended up helping to launch the home fitness industry. Um, but um, yeah, so, so Tom Hayden was successful for a while. He had been um, a radical le leftist activist um, and he, he was, you know, if you saw, um, he was one of the, 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 uh, defendants in the, 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 uh, he was one of the Chicago seven, um, oh, I see, I see, I see. for inciting, uh, you know, inciting violence at the 1968 political convention. But, um, anyhow, yeah, she, he and Jane did not remain married. He actually, um, was very threatened by her fitness career and kind of diminished it and um they they divorced and then she went on to marry ted turner right oh of course divorced. of course yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that, yeah. That, part, that part i ought to have known that's right mm -hmm. um another thing that struck me as a 
a consistent thread through at least the pioneers that you talk about in the the, the mid 20th century in the early days of this when the people who are uh, leading this movement are still outliers in regard to the larger society is the um, the explicit sex positivity um, and and the centrality of that to the the message it seems that it almost was so obvious to the people who were encouraging women to get fit that um, that the the two were the, that becoming fit and taking ownership of your body was tied to sex positivity, that it didn't even need to be pointed out. And I can't really mm. think of other places in the society. I mean, the, the, not to be, uh, not to be crude, but the quote from these, these, these bar workouts from the, what the 1950s, if you can't tuck, you can't fuck. That's, <laughs> that's yes, a wild that thing to be saying at that point. Absolutely. Um, yes, that was a Lottie Burke quote. She yes. invented bar, opened her studio in 1959, and she was really sort of a foremother of the sexual revolution. It seems like. Um, she herself was very open about her sex life. She was also in an open marriage. Um, she was bisexual. She talked about her affairs while she taught, and she was really fixated on what she called the inner core um, which is we would maybe now call like the pelvic floor, but she, um, as you said, she she was full of colorful quotes like that one, and was very. Um, she said at the time that she hoped her workout would would um, advance the state of sex for women. She encouraged women to tap into their own desires, and she believed that being um, being fit could also help you to enjoy sex more. Um, so she was very much ahead of her time, ahead of her time though. Um, I can't say that that same level of, um, explicit sort of sex posit positivity was, was threaded throughout all of these movements. However, I, I, I felt like I perceived it in the Betty Prudence stuff as well. Though. You're right. You're right. Yes. Um, it's funny in some ways, the sex positivity was was centered more in like mid-century America when it was more radical. So Bonnie Pruden, who's come up um, a few times, was one of the country's first contemporary female fitness evangelists. Um, she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1957. She went on to have one of the first TV fitness shows. She was also a fitness um, presenter on the Today Show in its earliest days. And she, along with Jack LaLanne, who um, listeners might have heard of, who also had one of the first TV shows, she- I remember really Jack LaLanne. Yeah, yeah. And he, he had a show on for, I believe it lasted just about three decades. So he, he had real longevity on the screen. I remember, I, I remember the waning days of Jack LaLanne. Specifically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As a total side note, I interviewed his widow, Elaine LaLanne, who no. is in, in her <laughs> mid, maybe late nineties now uh -huh. and still exercising. Elaine LaLanne. That is Elaine LaLanne. Yeah. She goes by Lala. She was great. Much um, <laughs> but, but Bonnie really helped to, I mean, she made it her mission to kind mm -hmm. of spread the message that everyone could benefit from exercise and women should strive to be strong, just like men, but she was also a product of her time and sort of, um, one of her catchphrases was under every muscle, there's a curve. So no muscle, no curve. So she packaged what she was selling in the sort of trappings of, of beauty culture and being more beautiful. Um, but Bonnie 
also like Lottie, such a complicated, fascinating figure who lived. A lot of these women were sort of like Forrest Gump, like figures who just lived, lived 10 lives and happened to find themselves at the center of major, you know, historical moments. Um, she wrote a book that was described by her publisher as an instant bestseller called How to Keep Slender and Fit After 30, uh, published in 1961, I believe. And she had a chapter in that book called uh, Sexercises. And um, just an interesting piece of trivia, her publisher was also the publisher of Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl, which came out a year later. And the publisher, his name was Bernie Geis, um, well, he recognized that sex sells <laughs> and he encouraged her to really lean into this. And so Bonnie Pruden was very frank about sex and kind of like Lottie Burke, but in a more, um, whereas Lottie was, was sort of European and saw herself as an artist, Bonnie had more of like a gym teacher vibe. So in a very straightforward way, talked about how strength and how, um, just the exercises that she was presenting could help women and men improve their sex lives. Um, and she was really, she was really radical for doing that. Um, Helen Gurley Brown then talks about Bonnie in sex and the single girl. So um, it's all connected, but she, she is a, a largely forgotten figure in this history. So I wanted to really put her back on the map. I don't know that Helen Gurley Brown's uh, affinity for the exercise culture, it didn't seem that it ever led to her actually lifting a finger, right? She seemed like <laughs> the, the prototypical, I'll, I'll live on cigarettes and saltines kind of person. Yeah. I mean, she was she was very proud of how little she ate. Yeah. Like, I mean, when you look at what she recommends as, a, as like a rule for all women in her book, it's, I mean, she, I think pretty clearly had an eating disorder, yeah. you know, and she, she did exercise and she, she talked about, oh, I see. she, she, well, yeah, she famously did exercises in her, you know, at home and she always took the stairs and she was sort of, um, she was a little bit ahead of her time in that way. I'm not suggesting, but she was doing it for, um, obviously she was doing it. She was not doing it to become strong. She was doing it to maintain her figure as she would have said at the time. Um, but the chapter in Sex and the Single Girl, where she talks about exercise, it's, it's a fascinating glimpse into a previous era because she, she approaches it like her tone is like, I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but <laughs> you should consider exercise. Hear me out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I'm sure, you know, I, I'm sure that helped to move the needle in some small way as well. Well, sure, exactly, because it's one thing for the fitness nuts to be all about fitness, but the person who's uh, stated goal for herself and who's trying to help you with the stated goal of, you know, the idea of, of, of being an attractive person, there's two sides to it. One is that you want to be attractive to people, but the other one is you just want to feel attractive. And so that, that that's sort of the <clears throat> why you might file Helen Gurley Brown, you know, what makes her feminist is that it was mm. there there was there was value in feeling sexy even if you were only doing it for yourself that's true that's true i mean helen Gurley brown um you know presented such a complicated sure. feminism and um i think there are so many 
different ways to interpret what she, what she preached. Um, it's hard for me to kind of, um, you know, as a, as a size positive person to look at what she was recommending, um, without, you know, a heavy dose of skepticism, but sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I will say like, she, she discovered what it would take, uh, you know, I would say about 10, 10 more years and then uh, like 10 more years for the masses to begin to discover and decades longer after that to really embrace, um, on mass. So, um, it's always interesting though, to look back and see how kind of these early believers were, were either treated as like a little bit kooky or, you know, sort of took that stance themselves and trying to sell a very skeptical public. Sure. Well, and I, I think I, I I look at people like that and I just kind of see them as part of a, of a continuum, you know, I'm not going Absolutely. to, I would be, it would be great if my daughter wants to read the feminine mystique, but I hope my daughter doesn't actually need Betty Friedan anymore because yes. hopefully we've, we've moved some of the, the boulders that were in the way when she wrote that book way back when. Yes. Yes. Uh, one little fact that struck me, uh, again, there's something just sort of so cinematic about this story. The girdle gives way with, with all of its implications and restrictions, literal and figurative, to the leotard, which is a, a game-changing thing. The leotard is, I mean, it's the spiritual antecedent of, of yoga pants. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you say... Girdles almost literally gave birth to leotards. Yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorite stories in the book. Um, So it traces back to the invention of Lycra, which was invented by a DuPont chemical company scientist um, in the 1950s. It was, it's a a fiber, Lycra is a fiber that was literally created in a lab, you know, in a test tube in a lab. And for about 15 years, DuPont scientists were trying to create a fiber that would create a more comfortable girdle. Um, Not really out of, um, you know, not really out of empathy for women necessarily, but just because at that time, everyone like 12 and older, every woman wore a girdle. And so it was, it it promised to be a huge moneymaker. So after years and years, they finally develop this fiber that is stretchy, but snaps back into place. They, you know, it, it leads to more comfortable girdles. And for a short time, the girdle sold really well, you know, demand, um, outpace supply. And then this very sort of curious thing began to happen where women, young women were hitting adolescence, but while DuPont and everyone else assumed they would want to dress just like their mothers, they began rejecting the girdle. Um, And this ties into, you know, the miniskirt and fashion rebellion and feminist views on fashion, that fashion shouldn't restrict the body, but should be, you know, should set it free. And so in a very literal sense, this, the fabric that had been created from the lycra fiber to create girdles was sitting in warehouses unused by the 1970s. Um, And it was then that 
dancewear manufacturers and um, and just other uh, fitness fashion designers discovered it and snatched it up and used this lycra fabric to create the you know, first contemporary fitness leotards. There were leotards before then. Um, dancers were leotards, but they were made of more natural fibers and they didn't really support an adult woman's body. Um, and so the leotard, like everything else in this realm is, you know, sort of a topic of debate. You could, you could argue that it over-sexualizes women, that it's, um, it's exclusive in, in who it's for. But many women at the time in the 1970s who had grown up wearing girdles that were hellish, you know, hellishly uncomfortable and feeling like there were strict rules around propriety found slipping into a lycra leotard to be really liberating and they loved it. And it, it allowed them to move their bodies in ways that they just hadn't been able to because of the restrictive nature of um fashion before then. Sure. And what we wear signals something to the world. If I walk around wearing basketball shorts and I, I might be going to play basketball, but I'm also just sort of signaling, I'm the kind of guy who's liable to go play basketball. I'm signaling something about my identity. When you wear a long conservative skirt, you're saying one thing about yourself. When you wear a mini skirt, you're saying something else. And prior to leotards, I can't think of anything else in the culture that a woman might've been seen in, in public, which just signified there's a good chance I'm on my way to the gym or just came from it. But if not, I am the kind of person that does that. You're identifying yourself publicly as someone who engages in vigorous exercise. And that is, that's a first, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I know there were, you know, there were tennis outfits. There was right. sport, there was sport fashion. Yeah. They just seem America... so ubiquitous. Somebody who grew up in the eighties, women in leotards was like kind of like a thing. It was a, it was like a genre oh, of person. It was, it was like warmers, et cetera. <laughs> gigantic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, by 1984, there's a statistic in my book, I'm trying to remember, but it was like uh, millions of millions of leotards were being sold every yeah. year. Um, leotard and aerobic dance fashion, you know, pretty quickly broke free from the studio onto the street exactly. by the early right. 80s. Um, it's really interesting because it was really, I mean, it started in the 70s, but in the 80s is when signaling as fitness became more accepted and became more of a goal signaling that you were fit or that you worked out um, became something that was important to particularly middle to upper class Americans. Um, you know, fitness began being equated with, with virtue and similarly um the more fitness was was equated with virtue, kind of laziness, sloth was equated with um, negative characteristics, you know, and um, and it was really it was really in the 80s where we began to see the roots of um, some of the some of the things that still dog, you know, the fitness industry today in terms of what we view as a fit body and who fitness is for and fitness as a pretty exclusive space. The finally the 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 subtitle of your book is how women discovered exercise and reshaped the world. Uh, what in your opinion does the history of female exercise culture and its current and future trajectory say about the larger world of women and about the world in general? 
Mm. Well, a theme throughout the whole book is the connection between, for women, fitness and physical autonomy, um, as well as physical trust. And what I heard over and over again while, while interviewing women who lived this history is that as they, become, as they became more physically competent as a result of greater exercise, you know, greatest, greater opportunity and access to fitness, they became more confident and that physical confidence and physical strength then translated into a kind of confidence and strength and self-determination in other parts of their lives. Um, so, you know, there's, it's very interesting to look at how both the parallels between the rise of the women's movement and the rise of women's physical strength, and also kind of what ended up happening as the women's fitness industry, which I think as women became more strong, they also posed more of a threat, became kind of co-opted by um, beauty culture and diet culture. Um, but as far as how it, it shaped the world, I, you know, I am an optimist. I think that we're in a better, we're, we are certainly in a better place today as far as women being encouraged to cultivate strength. Um, and we're, we're really at the beginning of a shift, um, away from fitness as a tool or exclusively as a tool for um, changing how we look, uh, shaping how we look to be socially acceptable and, and toward just feeling good and fitness as a tool for women to actually, instead of wanting to change their bodies to embracing, you know, what their bodies are capable of. So it's very interesting. I mean, we, it's, it's gradual and we have a long, long way to go, but, um, I think that generally speaking, we, you know, we're the, the fitness, fitness professionals, professionals are starting to really harness some of the profound benefits of movement, totally separate from the promise of what it can do for our physical appearances. It's a, it's an, it's an interesting story and it's told interestingly. So <clears throat> Excuse me one last time. Uh, I'll remind everybody the title is Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Thank you for your time and for your book, Danielle Friedman. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been fun. 